Okay, going to be in 2 Peter this morning as we continue our study in the letters of Peter. Many of you know that uh, my favorite baseball team is the Houston Astros. Uh, I've been a fan all my life. I remember going to some of the games when they were still in the old Astrodome. Uh, it was it was called the Eighth Wonder of the World when they built it. Uh, one of the, it was the first dome, if I was a big, big, huge dome like that. Uh, and I can remember going, and they had this giant scoreboard where anytime they'd hit a home run, there'd be like rocket shots, and there was this weird cowboy who would do his guns up and down as a whole thing. Uh, they always had good players, uh, including the great Nolan Ryan, who kind of anybody knows much about baseball has heard of him. Uh, but for some reason, they never really seemed to put it all together until they stumbled into the World Series in 2005. And I say stumbled because they were, there was a bunch of injuries on that team. Uh, uh, and they were swept in the World Series by the White Sox. Uh, and the team wouldn't make it back to the World Series until 2017 when they won the title. But then were found to be cheating by using a video camera in the outfield in order to steal the pitching signs from the Los Angeles Dodgers. They returned to the World Series in 2019, were defeated in seven games by the Washington Nationals, and then again in 2021, losing to the Atlanta Braves in six games. Uh, they made it back this year. They defeated the New York Yankees in four games in the American League Championship, and of course, I'm cheering for a championship, not just because I'm a fan, but because the one in 2017 has this giant asterisk, asterisk uh, due to the cheating scandal. And I'm hoping for a championship that no one can argue about. Uh, so the World Series started this weekend and the Astros are going up against the Philadelphia Phillies. Which means they have to defeat the city of brotherly love in order to win the title. Uh, so why am I rambling uh, about the Astros in my introduction to Second Peter? That's probably your question, right? Um, well, here's the thing. Before anyone knew about the cheating scandal, before, anyone, before that came out, it took like over a year for that to actually come out, uh, we all believed they were the legit champions. And I still believe they could have been without stealing the signs, but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, the thing about it is this. I watched those games. I stood nervously in our living room as it all unfolded. And when the Astros won the final game, I was elated. I wasn't on the team. I hadn't done a single thing to help them win, but I shared in that victory all the same. I hooted and I hollered and I jumped, and if you can believe that, I actually did jump. Um, I pumped my fist, you know, and I even bought a championship cap that I still have. And I, where every now and then. Um, it was as if I was an actual part of the championship, even though I wasn't on the team itself and did nothing to bring it about. And this, this idea of sharing in something that we had nothing to do with is what sporting events are all about, right? We cheer, we scream, and we get all excited and emotional about teams and stuff, and uh, we act as if their victories are our victories and their defeats are our defeats. We experience happiness and sadness, anxiety and elation all over some folks at a wall. 
And this morning we're going to talk about something far more important, but similar in a way. We're going to see how we all share in something else that is not our own. Something that we have not earned. And I want to say this before I read the passage. Um, originally I had more verses involved uh, for this week, but I shortened our passage because of how much is packed into these few first few verses. Uh, so I, I had to sort of cut some off so that we could really spend time on this part. So, if you will, follow along with me. We're going to read 2 Peter beginning in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. <clears throat> For these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, again, one of the reasons I shortened the number of verses we would be covering this morning is because there are two major ideas packed into these first few verses that need most of our attention. Uh, Peter mentions both God's divine power and divine nature. And he does so in a context that demands we dig deeper into what he might mean. After his greeting, which doesn't mention which group of believers he was writing to, but is more generally directed at those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, Peter then offered grace and peace, and he moved into the body of his letter by writing about God's divine power. And what he wrote should inspire and motivate every single one of us. According to Peter, God's divine power isn't some otherworldly thing that has no real impact on us until we're dead. It is actively involved in every part of who we are and who we are becoming. Everything we need in terms of how we will live as citizens of God's kingdom, everything we need in terms of being God's 
people and displaying godliness are already available and accessible to us. But we have to know Jesus because they are available and accessible through him. And this is a line of distinction that so many people don't seem to really like. The divine power of God and the precious promises that come to us as a result are only available through a relationship with Jesus. And not a mental assent that God exists or even that Jesus exists. Not an agreement that Jesus was a good teacher whose life should be a model for us. Only through a relationship with Jesus. In other words, if you don't know the host, you won't be allowed into the party. Now that may sound exclusive, and it sort of is, but then again it isn't because anyone can know him. Anyone can have a relationship with Jesus. John 3.16 makes it clear that whoever trusts in Jesus will not perish but will have eternal life. Everlasting life only comes from the source of life, which is God. And God's divine power makes it available and accessible to us through knowing Jesus. Now, for my entire life, uh, evangelical Christians have presented the gospel as how to avoid hell and get to heaven. That's kind of how it's presented to me all my life. You may or may not have the same experience. I'm just going on what I know. Uh, but see, that idea, how to avoid hell and get to heaven, that's not the gospel. It's been presented as the gospel, but it's not the gospel. If we focus on that, we are focused on the wrong thing. The gospel itself is that our Heavenly Father wants a relationship with us. And because of what Jesus did, we can have that relationship with him. The door is open and everyone is welcome. The whosoever surely meaneth me. Anyone. Anyone. The gospel isn't about where we go when we die. It's about who we have been with all along. If we are with Jesus, we already have this relationship. And through this relationship with Jesus, we have access to the divine power of God. Now that doesn't fully explain what Peter was saying here, but we have to understand that part in order to get to the real meaning. So, in the kingdom of God, there is a certain expectation of how we will live, right? Jesus spelled it out in his Sermon on the Mount. The problem is that none of us live like Jesus taught, not fully, not 100%, right? Some folks seem to think that this is a matter of knowing more, or of having a better education in the things of God. The more I know, the more I'll be able to do. But our knowing what God desires for us does not make us able to bring it about. We are still plagued by uh, the darkness within each of us. The sin that has so long enslaved us still lurks, still hides in corners of who we are. The pride and selfishness that cause us to make decisions based on what we want rather than what on God wants. 
It's only through the Lord's divine power that we are able to live as citizens of his kingdom, to overcome all of that other stuff and live the way we have been called to live. Which means if we want to live as we have been called to live, then we really need to rely on the power of God. I don't know that we do. I think that's the problem. I think it's what's lacking in much of American Christianity today. We have the appearance of being God's people, but we lack its power. Just as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.5, that Paul warned Timothy to avoid such people. Stay away from them. And maybe this is why so many people avoid the church. Maybe we need to be avoided. Because instead of offering them the gospel, we have instead presented them with a powerless substitute. We have offered them admittance to our semi-private club rather than the loving acceptance of their creator and his family. We've offered them feel-good sing-alongs and cliched sermons rather than space to experience the often overpowering awe and wonder of God. We've offered them culture wars and partisan politics bathed in religious terms instead of inviting them into a relationship with Jesus. And through it all, we have ignored the power of God. The power that can rescue a soul from itself, from the detrimental choices that keep it enslaved to sin and death. The power that can not only save us from eternal darkness, but from the joyless, meaningless, empty life right here and now. When we read the stories in the Gospels of the book of Acts, even in other parts of the New Testament, we find the divine power of God at work, actively moving in and among the believers. But strangely, when we look around now, we don't see anything like what we saw then. Some people have tried to excuse this away by claiming that God only worked like that in the first century. That once all of the apostles had died, the Holy Spirit sort of shifted gears and began doing things in a completely different way leaving the powerful movement behind. That doesn't make any sense. All through Scripture, we see God working miraculously. From Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation, we see the mighty hand of God at work. If some new believer picked up and read the Bible front to back, could they really come to the conclusion that God would only work that way then? That the Holy Spirit we read about in the New Testament had somehow shifted gears. And yet we look around at the American church and we don't see anything like what happened in the scriptures. Or we see a bunch of pretenders claiming they have the power of God and claiming miracles of various sorts. But every time someone takes a closer look, it's all fake and they are just taking advantage of people for money. Now, thankfully, those folks are easy to spot. They are the ones on the, with the TV shows wearing super fancy clothes and flying around in private jets. Um, but when we read that God's divine power has granted us everything we need, it may not mean everything we want, 
But it certainly doesn't mean we will be lacking. It also doesn't mean every prayer for healing will be answered how we want it to be answered. Or that God will do whatever we want. But it does mean that when we lean into what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us, we will experience the power of God in a way that changes us and changes our perspective. And we will see the world in a new way and interact with it in a new way. The power of God will radically change us if we will just let it. If we will just submit ourselves to the process, then joy and meaning and holiness are waiting for us there. And this leads us to the divine nature of God. In verse 4, Peter claimed that because of God's power and promises, believers become partakers of God's divine nature. And to fully understand this point, we have to know a bit about God's divine nature, right? And we've talked about it before, here and there, but as a reminder, according to Scripture, uh, the, the definitive things that we can say about God's nature are, are three things. God is light, God is love, and God is life. Those three things. That's the statements that, is, that are made. We can say a lot of other characteristics of God, right? There's other things involved. But these are the three things as his nature. And we saw these in the letters of John specifically when we were studying 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But they are also in various other places in Scripture. So the question then is how do we partake in life, light, and love, right? Those three things. And life seems the easiest of the three to explain. We are all living beings, and according to Genesis 1 and 2, this became a reality when God formed us and then breathed life into us, right? That's how that happens. And this is followed up by various places in the New Testament then, where we find that in Christ, we experience new life. Such as in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul wrote, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Or Romans 6.4, where he wrote that, We were buried therefore with, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This new life that we experience is part of what Peter would have been referring to when claiming we could partake in the divine nature of God. But then what about love and light? For love, we go back to 1 John 4, 7-8, where the apostle wrote, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. When we love, we are experiencing the divine nature of God. But let's be careful here because a lot of people think a lot of things about love, right? And it would be easy to claim that everyone loves someone and say that this is the, uh, is the reality of God in everyone. But this is similar to the way life works. Everyone has been given the breath of life, 
But not everyone has new life in Christ, right? There's a division there. Likewise, everyone experiences one aspect of love, but not everyone experiences the fullness of love that we're talking about here. This can be difficult for us to understand because we only have one word for love. Uh, but the Greeks, they had at least seven and maybe eight words for love. There's a bunch. Uh, of these, I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, there's one that we're probably familiar with is philia, which means a friendship kind of love or brotherly love. That's where Philadelphia gets its name. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they should win the World Series. So I want to be clear about that. Just because it's in there, that's not what that means. Uh, I won't go through all the others, like I said, but one of the, one of the writers uh, of the New Testament used almost exclusively the word they used all the time, of God as love and loving God, is, is the word agape. You've heard that before, right? Agape love. And we generally see it in terms of God's unconditional, self-sacrificing love for us. And that's, that's true. But literally, it actually means to take pleasure in or to long for. In other words, God's unconditional, self-sacrificing nature is based on the reality that God takes pleasure in us. Those two things are tied together. It's a revolutionary idea because just about every religion out there seems to believe that God hates us or is angry at us all the time or is looking to get us. But in and through Jesus, we see an entirely different God. A God who longs for a relationship with us. A God who takes pleasure in us. Most Christians I know come from a background in the church where they were taught that God is mad at us or disappointed with us or just exhausted with us completely. As if God is just generally put out by our very existence. And that may be the nature of the gods we find in the various religions of the world, but it's not the God we see in Jesus, thankfully. The God who loved us so much he became one of us to show us his love for us and forgave us even as we crucified him. The God whose divine nature is unconditional, self-sacrificing love. The God who takes pleasure in us. The God who takes pleasure in you, each of you. We get to partake in and experience this divine Nature, this love, not only for ourselves, but working in us as we love others. Not in the worldly way of love where we're only loving those who treat us well or it's a selfish kind of love, that kind of thing. But as we read in Matthew 5, 44 through 45, where Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We're supposed to love everyone equally, even if they're not lovable, right? And we know people like that. We know that there's unlovable people. We may be some of those unlovable people sometimes, 
right? I know I am. I can be grumpy. I can be mean. Ask my kids. They'll tell you, right? Yeah, okay. Anyway. All right, so finally we know that God is light. And y'all have heard me say that we are to be light in this dark world. I say that regularly. Uh, this is aimed in the right direction, but it was really not the whole picture. So I want to paint it a little bit more fully. In 1 John 1, 5, the apostle wrote, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In John 8, 12, and again in 9, 5, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And in Matthew 5, 14, he went on to say that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He's talking to his followers. That's, that's us. We then are the light of the world. And see, that's a sort of a snapshot of what Peter meant here. We experience the light of God in our own lives, right? And it eradicates the darkness and it pushes it out. And as a result, we become beacons of light to others. At least we're supposed to. In all of this, we are partakers in something we didn't earn or achieve on our own. Something we didn't discover or figure out. The divine nature of God isn't something we can even really fathom fully. But we can experience it. We can lean into God's divine power through the Holy Spirit within us and our lives can look more and more like Jesus. That's a reality. If we surrender our will to His, and if we do, Peter believed everything would change. In the last part of verse 4, he claimed that we would escape the corruption that is in this world. And Peter believed we could do this because of the divine power and divine nature of God which we are sharing in through the Holy Spirit that is within us. And he wanted to encourage these believers to flee from the old ways, to run away from the old ways that they'd always known and strive toward their new life in Christ. And he listed seven things here, and we're going to look at them real quick. Uh, first, there is virtue, which in the Greek is arete. It means moral excellence. Wouldn't it be great if the reputation of Christians in this town and in this country was moral excellence? Not superiority. That's a very different thing. That's based in the idea that our morality comes from us, that we are just really good people all the time. That we are producing that goodness ourselves. But Peter connected all these things to the divine nature and power of God, making it clear that we can only be morally excellent because of what God does in us. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8-9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the next word is knowledge, but it can also be translated as wisdom or doctrine. 
So it's important for us to have those things, to strive for wisdom, to know the doctrine, to know the teachings that we believe in. And then he added self-control, which actually has the connotation of restraint. And is incredibly contrary to our culture's ideal of self-indulgence, right? Like what do the, the younger folks say? Treat yourself. Treat yourself, right? Right? Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm so old now. I'm so old. But they said that's the idea, is self-indulgence. If you want something, you deserve it. Go get it. It's yours. But that's not what our lives in Christ are like. It's, it's magnified by restraint. We're supposed to exercise restraint. And then Peter included steadfastness. And we've covered that a number of times. Uh, the idea being that of endurance or remaining. And with these, Peter then attached godliness, brotherly affection, which again is that word Philadelphia. Um, I'm not trying to be mean about it. It just is. It keeps showing up in the sermon. Uh, I'm not sure how much I like that word that keeps coming up. Maybe I should have waited to preach this until after the World Series. Uh, but on top of these, Peter brought in love. And he said it last. It's almost uh, as if he sort of rounded these all together with, with this last word. And that word is agape that we said. In a sense, it seems like he meant for this to be a very specific list. He's using the number seven. We know numbers always mean something, right? The number seven mimics the seven days of creation, as if these ideals of the kingdom were a parallel of the seven days of the new creation. These are the things that God is creating now in us. And that just as the Sabbath day brought the creation week together in Genesis, Agape love brings it all together in the new creation. I think it might be a really good idea if each of us spent time meditating on these ideals over the next seven days. Uh, going back over this passage, looking at these seven things, uh, maybe one per day, uh, maybe all seven each day, however works best for you, I would just encourage each of you to go back and look at these and meditate on them and pray about them. That's the challenge. Take some time in your day to stop and go back over these verses and really, really consider them. Look, kind of take a, a look at what they might look like in your everyday life. But after listing these seven things, Peter challenged these believers to confirm their calling and election. We make this more complicated than it needs to be, I think. I think we like to talk about and argue about different things with this. But basically, if there is evidence in our lives of the seven ideals that Peter listed, then our calling and election are not in doubt. And if there isn't evidence of these things, or if we're deficient in some areas, then we need to be on our knees praying and asking the Lord to infuse us with his divine power and nature so that we are full of light and love and life for those around us, for ourselves and those around us. I, I know I say that a lot. I use a lot of the same terminology. It's because we need to hear it a lot. As a consistent reminder that we still have work to do in our lives, none of us have achieved it yet. We still have areas we need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. I said this Wednesday evening at Bible study, and I believe it with all that I am. If we will really lean into this, and, and we, we will live this way, it will make a massive 
difference, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the people of this town, as the power of God shows up. This is our calling, and our election is not in jeopardy, but we need to be who God has called us to be. We have access to the divine power of God and the ability to partake in the divine nature of God, to be one with the Lord, just as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.17, where he said that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Whatever it is that's holding us back from this, it isn't God. It's from the darkness either without or within, but whatever it is, it, it wants to keep us right where we're at. It wants to make us think, this is enough, this is good right here, that's far enough. But if we recognize it, call out to the Lord and confess it and open up the areas that would hold us back, we will see change for the better. We might not like the process that we go through to get there, because it's not always easy, but we will see change for the better. And we won't lose ourselves. We don't become robots or, or you know, it's not like that. C.S. Lewis once wrote, when God talks of their losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality. And boasts, I am afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, completely his, they will be more themselves than ever. That's what, that's what our striving is for. That's what our hope is for. That we might be in Christ through the divine power and nature of God more ourselves than ever. We pray with me.